Our Lord said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As John the Evangelist begins his account of those events that would take place in the upper room, he begins with a very important contrast. We see what it is that the father of lies has placed into the heart of one of the disciples, Judas. Selfish hate. And by way of contrast, we see what the Father in heaven has placed into the heart of our Lord Jesus. Selfless love. There is a detail that we're likely to miss from this account until at least we've read it over once or twice and thought it over once or twice. And that is that as was the custom, when the disciples entered the upper room, They took off their sandals, their feet being dusty from the dirt roads upon which they walked. And they knew it was the custom that normally a servant would come and wash their feet so that they could go and recline, lay on their sides around the table for dinner. But due to the nature of the confidentiality and the importance of that night, there was no servant there. And so each one of them, upon entering, realized there's no one here to wash my feet. There's no one here to wash our feet. Perhaps the thought even crossed some of their minds, should I do this? But of course, none did. To the table they went and they all reclined, No doubt there was a bit of conversation, and yet somewhere in the back of each of their minds must have been the thought, and this is how we're going to celebrate this most holy Paschal feast, this Passover with our Lord Jesus with dirty feet? Yet none stirred, none moved until suddenly our Lord himself stood up, took off the robe, and wrapped around himself the towel, maybe even the servant's apron, as would have been a custom. And he girded it around himself, and he went over to the water pitcher, and he poured it into the basin. And he brought the basin over behind the men as they reclined on their sides around the table. And he began to do the unthinkable. He began to wash their feet. I can imagine that you would not, or you could have heard a pin drop. There would have been absolute silence. And imagine if it were you there, what would be stirring in your heart and in your mind as he stooped to do what neither you nor any other would. As he goes around washing the disciples' feet, finally he comes to Peter. And Peter asks him a question. The way he asks it assumes a negative answer. Peter is trying to politely say, no. Would you wash my feet also, he asks. Jesus answers him, 
in perfect tenderness, meekness, mercy. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterward you will understand. But of course, Peter being Peter, and as is his way, he simply doubles down. In the English, he says, you will never wash my feet. In the Greek, it's closer to, for all eternity, you will not wash my feet. Now the dynamic has changed a bit, hasn't it? It's no longer so much about dust on his feet, but submission to his Lord, and not any kind of submission. Peter must submit himself to the Lord's humble service. If he doesn't do it here, he won't do it when our Lord serves him by dying on the cross. I must wash you, Jesus says, or you have no part in me. You cannot be too proud to accept this work that I am going to do on your behalf. Peter, of course, being Peter, flips the switch once again. Wash then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Every part of me that's sticking out from this robe. And you can see how beautifully our Lord plays with the two themes, the common earthly theme and the greater heavenly theme, when he says, one who has bathed has no need to be washed. He's already clean, save for his feet. The early church liked to preach that this is analogous to baptism. We are as those who have already bathed. And we are clean. And yet as we go about our business in this world, we can't help but dirty our feet. And so we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus. We're brought back to the waters. And Jesus absolves us and washes our feet, returning us to the purity of the baptismal grace he has given. You are all clean, Jesus said to them but not every one of you. For he knew who it was there who had not selfless love in his heart, but selfish hate in his heart, and that he had planned to betray him that very night. Our Lord said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Perhaps the first thing we need to admit is that we don't know very much about what love is. God is love, so perhaps in some sense at least, we only know what love is insofar as we know who God is. And yet, the demons know God even better than we, but have not love. So we must consider this as well. In the world today, in our own fallen flesh, it is most common, arrogantly, to assume, well, I know what love is, and then to simply read that back 
into God. The scriptures say God is love, but we say my idea of love must be God. This is the origin of such statements. Ah, a loving God would never do those things that God in the scriptures does. My Jesus is too loving to do those things that Jesus in the scriptures does. So we fashion God and our Lord Jesus into an idol of our own limited and perverted understanding of love. This misunderstanding of what love is is at the root of our society's ills, the ills of the world around us. No doubt you have all driven through the neighborhood of the church. Maybe even your own neighbor has a sign up that at the very top reads, love is love. Is it now? I wonder how that person would react if one were to come and say, I love your car. I think I'll take it. Love is love. I love your wife. I think I'll take her. Love is love. I love your children. I could use a few extra hands helping around the house. Love is love. No, the argument moves then to, well, love is love between two consenting adults. But that's not true either. That's just disordered love. And disordered love is no love at all. In this case, it is simply lust. When you see those words, love is love, would it not be far more accurate to say, that just means lust is lust? Indeed. So we see that what the world presently calls love is in fact selfish and evil. No doubt, deep down, Judas believed he was doing the loving thing as well. So in the first place, we want to clearly identify the false satanic love of this world, and we want to extricate ourselves from it, come out from them, as the scriptures say. And as we come out, we do so not in self-righteousness, but we come out as those set free from a snare and a trap, confessing our own culpability and the sins of our heart that we ourselves have committed. And in humility, we turn away from the world's ideas of love, away from our own ideas of love, and we set our eyes on Jesus and we say, Lord, you alone are love. Teach me. And our Lord says, as I have loved you, so also you love one another. What is this shape and form of our Lord's love? but to selflessly do that which is most humble, most menial, most despised. And he shows us this not only as he washes the disciples' feet, but then also as he goes to the cross 
to lay down his life for one and for all. To do for us what we would not even do for ourselves, let alone for our neighbor. He does for us selflessly. So we see his love is selfless and that there is nothing beneath it. That means when we go into our vocations with godly love, rightly ordered love, love according to the Ten Commandments, we must keep in our mind that at the heart of this is selfless love for our neighbor, selfless love for spouse, for children and parents, for employer and for employee, for neighbor and countrymen. Selfless love and a love that is not ashamed to do anything rightly ordered for our neighbor. When we look to our Lord Jesus, what do we see? We see the maker of the heavens and the earth. He who is clothed in the glorious robe of heaven. Take off that robe and glory and majesty. Set it aside and become man in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We see him rise in the midst of his disciples and take off his robe to serve them and wash them. We see then, but in a few short hours, that same robe will be taken off of him once more when the scourges fall upon his back. And it will be taken off of him once more when he is crucified and nailed to the tree for us, for our salvation. Such is his love. We look to him and see he whose hands formed the ocean, he who stills its proud waves, He who quiets the raging waters and sea with just his word. And he goes over to the pitcher, pours water into the basin, begins to wash his disciples' feet. He pours water into the font and washes not only your feet, but your whole body and soul in his grace. And but a few hours later, we will see that it is the spear that pierces his side and his heart, and from his heart flows forth water and blood for the cleansing of the sins of the world. When we look to him, we will see he to whom every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, will bow. And we see him kneeling on his knees at the feet of his disciples. We know, too, that that is precisely what divine service means, that if you want to locate Jesus in this room, he is, as it were, kneeling at your feet, the divine one serving you. But a few hours later, we will see him fall upon his knees once more under the weight of the sins of the world, under the weight of his holy cross. 
He whose hands formed the seas and the dry land, in the palm of whose hand rests the world even as we speak, into his hands he takes his disciples' feet. And as he's washing them, washing the filth off and scrubbing the dust and dirt and grime, it's going on to him into the water and on his holy hands, splashing up on his white servant's garment. And as he dries them on the towel and garment, there are remnants of that dirt and that filth upon him. He bears your sins, each and every one of them. For such is his love, that he who knew no sin became your sins for you. And he has washed you. You are clean, he says, body and soul. Every thought, word, and deed of which you are ashamed has been washed away by none other than Jesus and his love. He has prepared you, just as he prepared the disciples in the upper room, to come to his table and the table of his Father, to the Passover table, where we together eat the Passover lamb, and the angel of death flies overhead, not touching us, because we are saved by his blood and by his blood alone. He prepares us to come to this earthly table, that we might also come to his heavenly table. And truth be told, these two are already one. Here in perfect love, he gives himself, his life for our life, his body into our bodies, his blood that his life might be our life, all for the forgiveness of our sins. What is the glory of the selfless love of Jesus who washes the disciples' feet, who goes willingly to the cross? Perhaps the most important thing for us to realize is that these things aren't alien to Jesus. They aren't alien to the Father. Father is love, Jesus is love, and this is what love does. This is who God is. The humility, the selflessness, the love of God, are these not his glory? So what does it mean when he showers you in this love and invites you to participate in this love? Is he not showering you with his glory and inviting you to participate in his glory? So hear those words of our Lord once more. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you Love one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.